0: Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive functions. This show is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. These conversations will introduce mental tools that will empower you to shift your mindset for a successful life. And now, here's your host, Sucheta Kamath.
1: Welcome back to Full Prefrontal, where we are exposing the mysteries of executive function. As always, I'm here with our host, Sucheta Kamath. Good morning, my friend. Uh, Before we get to our intriguing interview today, uh, you're going to share a pretty cool story. Tell us about it.
2: Yes. Good morning to you, Todd. It's such a pleasure to be with you and to talk about the things we do. And, you know, we talk about executive function and today we have a very special guest. So we are going to talk about brain injuries and injury to the brain causing injury to the very part of the brain that monitors or governs the rest of the brain. And to begin with, you know, our understanding of the brain has changed radically in the last 20 years. And we have neuroscience to thank for, but we also have some incredible individuals to thank for. And before I have talked about Phineas Gage, who in the 19th century or 20th century, I guess, taught us a little bit about the brain and the frontal lobes, but now we have many, many people who have survived injuries to the brain and written about it. And one special person that comes to mind is Jill Bolte-Taylor. She's a neuroscientist who was at Harvard Brain Research Center when she herself experienced a severe kind of a brain injury where a blood vessel in her brain popped and that bleeding in the brain and rupture caused lots of problems for her, including not being able to concentrate, pay attention, judgment, decision-making, all these higher-order skills got impaired. And she says that my perception of physical boundaries was no longer limited to where my skin met air. And so she has written this incredible memoir which is called My Stroke of Insight, and that book is one of the sources of, from a person who studied the brain or studies the brain, kind of then understood what actually the inner workings of the brain looks like. In my 20 years of career, I have met a lot of people, including one of my favorite psychologists in Boston when I lived, Diane Stoller, who wrote a book. She was a psychotherapist, and she had a stroke while she was driving and she then on top of the stroke had a head injury. And so she went on writing uh, a book called Coping with Mild Traumatic Brain Injury. And then there are several people including another doctor who had a concussion and she wrote a book called Over My Head, a doctor's own story of head injury from the inside looking out. And one of my favorite titles of the book, and even the book is great, is called Where's the Mango Princess? A Journey Back from Brain Injury, where a wife has written about her husband's brain injury. What I'm trying to say here is that we need the art and the science to understand and manage brain injuries, and we need to understand how common this entity is, and so many of us are impacted by this anomaly. And that's why our today's conversation is going to be so empowering, because we have a incredible guest, and she is a personal friend of mine, and her name is Juliette Habauer-Krupa. She's a senior health scientist on the traumatic brain injury team in the division of Unintentional Injury Prevention Unit at the Injury Center at the CDC. As a behavior scientist, her role on the TBI is to devise research projects and products to better understand trends in TBI in the United States and to improve healthy outcomes for individuals living with TBI. She is a project lead on the report to Congress, the management of traumatic brain injury in children, and the return to school projects in the division. Her recent publications include a report on life expectancy and employment outcomes for moderate to severe traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress syndrome disorder in mild traumatic brain injury, and a point of healthcare entry for children with concussions. So her work is expansive. She also has 30 years of experience and has authored over 20 publications and presentations in the area of traumatic brain injury and particularly rehabilitation in the field of pediatric population. She has served as the faculty at the University of Pittsburgh, George Washington University, and Georgia State University, and currently holds a adjunct position in the Department of Pediatrics at Emory University. So she is our local shiro, and I can't wait to have a conversation with her.
1: Well, Shucheta, you continue to bring some amazing guests to the show in and we always discuss very unique and diverse topics. It's going to be fascinating. So let's get to it. Here is Sucheta's conversation with Dr. Julie Harbauer-Krupa.
3: Welcome to the podcast, Julie. It's such an honor to have you. You and I go a long ways, and I don't think we have formally sat down uh, to discuss these important topics. So welcome. Oh, thank you. And thank you for
4: the invitation.
3: So, let me start with this question: What is traumatic brain injury? A layman may often hear various terms uh, used interchangeably to describe injury to the brain, such as traumatic brain injury or concussion, or even something called MtBI, which you and I are familiar with, but uh, most often uh, the the explanation of that is a mild traumatic brain injury. So do you mind sharing for our listeners, would you mind defining these terms and uh, do they present themselves or appear to be
4: recorded? In distinctly different ways oh great question and I'm going to give a definition based on what's on our CDC website which is a traumatic brain injury is this disruption in the normal function of the brain that can be caused by a bump blow or jolt to the head or a penetrating head injury and traumatic brain injury is usually classified by severity mild moderate or severe and that classification is often given at the time of injury diagnosis when healthcare providers use something called the Glasgow Coma Scale and so a mild brain injury is up at the upper end with a has a more a brief change in mental status compared to a severe brain injury which has an extended period of change in mental status or unconsciousness so mild TBI um, concussion is a type of mild tbi or a form of it and sometimes those terms are used interchangeably but you're right there's a lot of confusion on the terms so we've tried to on our website show the distinction between them at cdc.gov yeah and
3: thank you for clarifying
4: that i
3: think what i see in my clinical practice as well as in casual conversations with people that when it comes to concussion And this just recently happened uh, last week when we had gathered for dinner that a friend's son fell backwards as he his phone fell down on the floor. He he was on a slope on an icy little hill and he turned back, he slipped, he hit his head uh, backwards. And of course, he did not lose consciousness. However, he developed a lot of symptoms such as headaches. And he did not think of going to see any doctor. Because he did not lose any consciousness or this was not at all. There was no bleeding. There was no contusion. There was no nothing, you know. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. we're going to get into that. But I just quickly wanted you to make a comment from your observations and as a scientist that this business of concussion versus mild traumatic brain injury, particularly when there's no loss of consciousness, no bleeding, there's no evidence of direct symptoms. How do people in real life process that, you know? There's like a lot of uh, a
4: great wisdom. <laughs> That's a great question when someone falls, especially a child. So he, the case you described, the child had an event where they fell and bumped their head. But actually, they did have some symptoms. He had a headache afterwards. And I think the event and some symptoms, so even though he didn't lose consciousness, he had some changes. And we really encourage parents to seek a healthcare evaluation and let the healthcare provider, let them know what to monitor um, and at least get it evaluated. So that's a great question, which we hear a lot. What's the difference between a bump on a head and a concussion or mild TBI? And I think if there's an event and if there's symptoms like headaches, change in behavior, it may not be that they are unconscious, it may be that they just have some changes that parents notice. I think those are children and adults who should seek a healthcare assessment. Great, great.
3: So how many people in the United States experience ATBI? And just quickly, I think we use the term, or at least CDC also describes prevalence versus incidence. Do you mind walking us
4: through that a little bit? No, I'm happy to talk about that. So we post on our website the rate of TBI-related emergency department visits. So where we get our data from to do this posting is emergency department visits. It's a large administrative data set where we can see by diagnosis code who has been to the emergency department for traumatic brain injury. And in 2013, there were about 2.8 million traumatic brain injury emergency department visits, hospitalizations, and deaths in the United States. TBI contributed to the deaths of nearly 50,000 people, and TBI was a diagnosis in more than 282,000 hospitalizations and 2.5 million ED visits. And these consist of TBI alone or in combination with other injuries. So the diagnosis code may not have been the only one, especially if they had broken arms or broken legs. And prevalence, that I mean, incidence, that tells more On our site, we report incidents, which really tells the number of new cases presenting for care or the rate of new cases, whereas prevalence talks about not only new cases, but pre-existing cases. So prevalence, I recently had a paper published on the prevalence of parent-reported traumatic brain injury in children. And how this was ascertained, it wasn't looking at large administrative data sets about hospital visits. Parents were asked, Have you ever been told by a physician or a healthcare provider that your child had a brain injury or a concussion? And so they responded, we were looking at their lifetime history. So they could have just had it. It could have been a new case or it could have occurred any time in the child's lifetime. And that is what prevalence is. It's more a lifetime history compared to an emergency department visit of a new case. So
3: does the emergency visit include a child who endure incurred uh, an injury in during the school time or at, uh, on the premise? Does this also include all ages like zero to death when CDC yes. reports?
4: Yes, we report um, birth to sixty five plus, and there are codes for injury. Causes that I can talk about causes of TBI. It doesn't necessarily, in this data set, get down to the location of where the injury occurred, whether it happened at school or at home. But we do know from this data set what causes. What's the common cause of TBI?
3: So what I'm understanding, the prevalence really shows it does uh, something, uh, you know, injury to the brain, but that did not lead to emergency visit.
4: So this well, it could, t- it could. It could. It could. Because when we ask parents, we don't know where they sought care. We just know that they were seen for, they were diagnosed with a brain injury. So they may have sought care in a pediatrician's office, in an emergency department, at an urgent care. We don't know where they sought care in that prevalence estimate in the jama paper.
3: So for the welfare of the country and the way we manage health, How do these two points of intersection inform us in terms of taking good decisions in terms of whether it's management in healthcare, whether it's policy or even
4: educational decision? How do we understand these two data sets? That's a great question because TBI data is reported, like you say, in different ways. So by understanding emergency department visits, that's one aspect, but also Over time, when we learn the prevalence of TBI in a population, we understand that sometime during their lifetime they had one. We don't know a lot about outcomes for people who have a lifetime history of TBI or people who just see the emergency room and go home and don't seek other care. But I think both estimates are important to understand to determine what happens over time for people as they recover and then as they go back to their lifestyle. I think the prevalence estimates that we reported in children were a little bit higher because it wasn't just emergency department visits. It could have also been that they sought care at a different location, as I mentioned, such as a urgent care or their pediatrician's office. The same is true for adults. Some adults may seek care from their primary provider, particularly for mild injuries, which, by the way, had the highest incidence in the population that's primarily the number of injuries are more mild injuries
3: and going quickly back to the mild injuries are we still defining them as a loss of consciousness which lasts for less than 10
4: minutes well that's one definition i've seen in the literature i think in in hospital data sets it's often defined by the glasgow coma scale which a ranking of higher numbers such as 13 to 15 shows a change in mental status but may not or symptoms but doesn't necessarily mean they've lost consciousness what are the most common
3: causes of tbi do these causes vary by age and who is at the highest risk
4: for tbi so falls are the leading cause of traumatic brain injury and we report that from our 2000 13 data, they account for about 47% of all TBI-related emergency department visits. They disproportionately affect the oldest age group, which is 65 and older, and the youngest age group, which is age four and younger, so birth to four. So, causes can vary based on age. And the leading number of emergency department visits are older adults from falls Young children from falls, and the third group is teens between the ages of 15 to 24, where the cause is motor vehicle crashes. So, there um, among all age groups, motor vehicle crashes were the third overall leading cause of TBI-related ED visits. Wow. <laughs>
3: so, what does that tell us? When you say 47% of our uh, the injuries to the brain are incurred by fall, are is that because people have coordination issues? We are just not. But, you know, in either ends of the spectrum, I guess that's uh, an issue of uh, coordination. But, I mean, because this directly feeds into how do we prevent it.
4: (laughs) Exactly. And at CDC, we have a program called Steady, which is designed for older adults, senior adults, for falls prevention that Our falls team has worked very hard to implement it into clinical settings because you're right. There's a lot of issues with older adults concerning falls, including changes in coordination. It may be their medication affecting that. There's a lot of work done in in our division on that area. Um, Young children, we're just starting to beginning. We're just beginning to understand what happens to them and why they fall. There's not enough information out there yet. But we're hoping to talk more about that and then work on false prevention in young children as well. And so with the TBI related to
3: the motor vehicle accident, so that clearly is related to impulsivity. Uh, is, has CDC developed any programs uh, to inform young drivers or parents how to coach this transition from non-drivers to drivers versus
4: safety into, you know, transitioning into young adulthood? Yes, thank you. That's a great question. We also have, in addition to our falls team, we have a motor vehicle team that has developed some great projects for young drivers, early drivers, and for specific populations such as tribal populations. And that's on our website as well. So yes, we have worked on that in our division. And there's a lot of good work on prevention of motor vehicle accidents and distracted driving. So this is a bit of a philosophical
3: question, but do humans change their behaviors by looking at statistics?
4: <laughs> oh, you know, this such an I av- don't know the answer to that. Do humans change their behavior looking at statistics? I think there has to be messaging and interpretation for the general population. And I know we work very diligently on that, on what we post on our website, so You'll see some statistics on the CDC website, but you'll also see some plain language regarding those statistics that hopefully will help people understand them.
3: Yeah, I think the next few questions I'm going to ask you probably will help people understand the importance of making meaningful connections to these statistics because it's not just the incidence of uh, or incurring uh, head injury or, or you know, brain injury, but it's the lifetime, lifelong alterations in mental state that people suffer from that's what's really the uh, you know what causes compromised lifestyle so my next question is what role does alcohol and substance abuse play in experiencing tbi either before or after even uh, even after injury
4: there's a limited literature on high levels of alcohol related to tbi i've read some articles on patients with any kind of injury who had a very high blood alcohol concentration so before the injury. It's hard to tell for right now. There's limited research about alcohol related to TBI in motor vehicle crashes, for example. There is some literature on substance use before and after the injury. And there's also some folks who've looked into that through the TBI model systems work. And what we do know is that if someone is using, is abusing substances after the injury, it does influence their recovery trajectory. And so, I think it's very important that that be examined and that healthcare providers advise people who've had a traumatic brain injury not to use alcohol and other substances after because it will influence their recovery. And also, I think the multiple injuries, I mean, it,
3: it increases the risk to incur uh, more injuries, right?
4: If you have already had uh, a brain injury is that fair to say well that's an assumption i think you can say knowing the effects of alcohol and what it does on your performance i don't think there's literature to, to substantiate that yet but i think that's an assumption based on what we know how alcohol can alter motor and cognitive performance and this is
3: one uh, one more question related to the uh, Incurse a brain injury. You know, uh, I work with a lot of uh, children with ADHD and they apparently mm-hmm. have a lot more uh, frequent uh, concussions and not just limited to one, but more than one. Is there some data that shows that relationship?
4: Well, I know Grant Iverson has looked at that in high school students and estimating in a smaller study that a large number of children with ADHD or attention deficit disorder have concussions in high school students. I know in our prevalence paper that we just published in JAMA Peds in September, we showed an association of ADHD with those, there was a higher rate of ADHD in children who had, whose parents answered yes, they've had a traumatic brain injury, And but we don't know whether that was before or after the injury, but we do know there's a very high association of that condition with having a traumatic brain injury. Got it.
3: Why should we really take a careful look at uh, traumatic brain injury and how does that impact society and culture as an entity? And because there's, there are costs involved in managing TBI, right?
4: Yes. And I think the burden of traumatic brain injury, we're just beginning to understand. As I mentioned, most of them are mild in, the, in people who go to the emergency department. And we do have more research on costs for moderate to severe injury, but we don't know really how it impacts those who have mild injury over time. And what's available on looking at moderate to severe injury, there's a lot on healthcare utilization and cost using large administrative data sets that show insurance claims or injury compensation for moderate to severe brain injury. And what we've noticed in this, in the little bit of literature there is, there's wide variation in healthcare service utilization and cost depending on the population that they're studying and the severity of TBI. So it's hard to come up with an actual figure what are the costs of TBI. Existing studies look at healthcare costs after the injury. And we do know that there's disparities in racial, ethnic, gender, insurance, and geographic in the U.S. We know a little bit about that. But what we don't know is overall, how does this impact people's lives? As an adult, for example, if you have a traumatic brain injury of any severity, maybe even mild, and and I just want to make one comment about the mild, moderate, severe, that talks about the injury at the time of injury. It does not tell you the outcomes people experience over time. So someone might have an, a mild injury, but they may lose their job and their source of income and become divorced from their spouse. That's a significant impact. And we don't understand all of that when we talk about costs. So we know a little bit about healthcare costs. We know that more severe injuries cost more money. And we know there's disparities based on type of insurance, for example, but we don't know overall how does this affect a person's economics over time? If they lose their job, do they get it back? Because we don't follow everybody who's seen.
3: Yeah. And I think I was reading this uh, um, Adele Diamond's article, which gives an overview of executive dysfunction throughout or and its relationship to many other aspects of life such as its impact on marriage, its impact on ability to maintain a job, not get fired from the job, its impact on getting you know tickets, its impact on social justice or uh, inappropriate social behaviors and including violence. And so executive dysfunction seems to be a common thread that impacts the lifetime trajectory of a lot of behaviors and, and presentation. And I, I would be very keen to know what CDC finds out because I do think that's the hidden injury, you know, the, the hidden disability that has not been targeted because such individuals don't receive proper interventions either because they're... You're right. It's an, an
4: invisible disability. So they may, you may, you don't see it really. Yeah. You don't see that they have, they walk differently. It's an invisible injury. It's an invisible symptom. You just see their behavior and react to their behavior.
3: So as we talk about, we have been talking a lot about this TBI and uh, itself, but can we quickly talk about how does TBI affect the brain and the body? What's its impact on executive function and even the personality and behavior changes? So there are lots of things. And you were a clinician before uh, you got into research. Uh, so I, I
4: think you are at a very good place to explain this to us. Do you mind sharing that with us? Oh, no, and as someone who's taught neuroanatomy at multiple universities, I have some thoughts on this. So how does TBI impact executive functions? Executive functions are how, primarily housed in the frontal lobes of the brain. And if you look at how the skull is formed, there's bony projections in those frontal lobes. So even if the brain, even if there isn't a penetrating injury, the brain moves around when there's an injury and it, it the frontal lobes are the most likely to be impacted by a traumatic brain injury, which is a more global injury compared to a stroke that might just be an isolated vascular lesion. Traumatic brain injury is more global and your brain is reverberating inside that hard bony skull. So that's why you see executive function issues as a symptom. After a brain injury, and something that may not be readily apparent until a person goes back to their lifestyle and people started noticing changes in behavior. So, executive function is one aspect that's affected. And I also think a traumatic brain injury can also affect other conditions. For example, sometimes people have autonomic nervous system dysfunction where their heart rate changes. There might be physiologic function on their heart rate regulation and variability from the brain injury. They might, over time, experience endocrine problems that evolve in time post-injury. So there's many things with the physiology of the brain that can be impacted from the injury, including executive function. And so that might contribute to these subtle changes in personality and behavior over time. Yeah. And
3: I think this, you know, the entire term of executive functions that covers your planning your organization, your future mm-hmm. thinking, your ability to understand self, self-awareness. So a lot of um, it kind of uh, even compounds the problems because you are now having challenges, but you are unaware of the way your challenges are impacting your outcomes for the future. So it's a double whammy, I feel.
4: Yes, I agree too. And I've heard from adult survivors who will say at the time of diagnosis, they knew they had symptoms, but they didn't really realize what that meant till they went back to work and they were living with these symptoms. So they weren't aware that they had changes. I think that happens to people. They aren't aware till they get back in their own environment that, hey, I can't remember this like I used to, or I fly off the handle more easily, or their family members notice it
3: yeah and work a lot of times particularly with the mild uh, brain injuries that you have you and i have talked about this before that most symptoms don't come forward until you put yourself back in the most intense environment where the brain is uh, utilized so a lot of times with mild yeah. concussion people go through a rest and they feel fine and so it may be before four months that the symptoms um, you know come on board uh, giving a person a sense of changed a presentation, and they may or may not relate back to the event that caused uh, the uh, changes to begin with. I see that well, in a lot of
4: my <laughs> Your patients. Well, and I can get, use an example. We've just released guidelines for diagnosis and management of mild traumatic brain injury in children, and one of the things that's recommended is that there's gradual return to sports and activity in school with symptom monitoring. Because you're right, you may be fine at the doctor's office, but then when you go back in your environment where you're stressing yourself, the symptoms may not have totally disappeared. And I think that's really important for people to understand.
3: So Julie, how does TBI in childhood impact
4: the developing brain? That's a great question. You know, children's brains develop over time as systems and they are more vulnerable to having the injury, they're more at risk for long-term effects because of that. We do know that children can have changes from even mild injuries. What we don't know is how that impacts their adult outcomes over time because there not there have not been any longitudinal studies of childhood injury into adulthood. But it does physiologically, it can affect their brains, and there's recent studies coming out using diffuse tensor imaging Sensors, fMRIs that are showing that even early on there's physiologic changes in children's brains. But we don't know how that impacts their systems as they develop. For example, executive functions in children start developing more around age 10 and they continue into early 20s. So that's a very long time. And we don't really know how that, how an early childhood brain injury or multiple injuries impact that trajectory over time, but we do consider children at greater risk for having long-term issues.
3: I know next segment, we're going to talk about managing traumatic brain injury and interventions, which I'm very excited about, but as we come to the end of the podcast, do you have any thoughts about how well can we predict the outcomes after TBI and how does TBI or more than one injury to the brain affect the outcomes related to overall quality of life?
4: Well, I'm going to give you some examples of what I've read in the literature or worked on that contributes to outcomes. Um, Some are within the person or the individual, some are related to the injury, and some are related to the environment. So the person, what we know from some of our adult work is that education, higher levels of education and skilled occupational categories contribute to better outcomes. Also being married. Contributes to better outcomes. We also know that co occurring conditions can contribute to outcomes. So, if someone had attention deficit disorder diagnosed prior to the injury, that's going to contribute to their outcomes over time. As far as the injury, we know that more severe injuries, as would be expected, there's more damage to the brain, worse outcomes compared to mild injuries, although we haven't studied a range of individuals with mild injuries over time to see if that really is affecting their quality of life. And also, people can have a mild injury at the time but experience complications. Let's say they were admitted to the hospital overnight and they may have started having seizures or something like that that contribute to their injury outcomes. And one of the main issues is the environment. So, access to resources to help them recover and get back to their lifestyle. And also, you know, a support system is known to be a great contributor to outcomes over time. So I I think we understand some predictors of outcome and what might limit outcome, but we haven't studied all of those across the age span of people in the U.S.
3: Got it. This is so wonderful, Julie. For sharing these wonderful insights, uh, as we close, I have one last question. Uh, you at mm-hmm. CDC have the bird's eye view on uh, the terrain, uh, the landscape of uh, you know the health disease and uh, throughout the nation, and you also have a long view of how we have, as a society, come to understand impact of different diseases on uh, lifestyle. So what? Does TBI specifically tell you about well being, uh, human well being? Do you have any thoughts about that? That's a great question. So, well being over time, do you mean? Yeah, well being over time, well being, because TBI is a, a one anomaly that is not affects just the individual. It affects the, the household. You know, it affects uh, the loved ones because you have to now take care of this person for a long, long time, you know, unlike some other yeah. disorders. So,
4: I would just curious. Well, what I I want to say something about the chronicity of TBI as a chronic condition because in adults, that's been published. In 2010, Brent Missell wrote an article saying traumatic brain injury is not an event. It's a chronic condition over time, regardless of severity, because even people with mild TBI can experience behavioral symptoms over time. So with adults, it can They're at risk for it impacting their health and well-being over time. We need to understand more about what are preventative and factors that would prevent or facilitate a better outcome. In children, it really hasn't been recognized yet as a chronic disease. And in many states, from my understanding, it's not listed as a health condition for insurance, for example. And so it's really not well understood. I think that's one of the issues contributing to health and well-being of individuals who sustain a TBI is we don't have enough studies longitudinally of people who succeed and people who have difficulty to be able to say, okay, these people succeeded, this is what happened to them. These people did not succeed, this is what happened to them. And I think more of that information will be helpful to better understand health and well-being over time. As someone who's been in the field for 30 years, I think we've made great progress by 2018 because when I first started, there was no literature on TBI. I remember when we wrote our textbook, we had to look at child development literature because there was nothing about outcomes. And now we know more, a little more about children. And thanks to a system called Traumatic Brain Injury Model System, Which has 20 years of data on individuals who sustain mild to severe, I'm sorry, moderate to severe brain injury who were enrolled in inpatient rehabilitation. We at least have a snippet to understand adults because it's for 16 years and older. And they've published some great papers, including one I worked on with them on life expectancy after traumatic brain, moderate to severe traumatic brain injury. So there's literature out there that gives us a hint but we have more work to do. Got it. Well, this
3: has been extremely informative and your passion comes through, Julie, and I can't thank you enough for being here today and sharing this information. It's something, you know, being in the field for 20 years and having treated or worked with so many individuals with uh, traumatic brain injury, concussion, TBI, mild mild traumatic brain injuries, and seeing uh, their life change forever. And sometimes seeing them receiving support from the society and sometimes not seeing that this is a um, uh, you know, topic of great interest to me and very close to my heart. So I really appreciate you being here today.
4: Well, I appreciate you asking because I think we're learning there are a lot of people who experience TBI and it's not like a common condition like asthma that's very clearly defined. I think we have a lot more work to do to better understand and help people over time. Uh-
3: but we thank you for for doing all this work and, and helping us enrich our understanding. So thank you for coming on the podcast. And I look forward to our second interview. Thank
1: you. All right. So once again, that was Dr. Julie Harbaro-Krupa. What a great conversation, Jucheda. Goodness gracious. Uh, any initial thoughts out of that?
2: Yes, indeed. It was fabulous. And uh, so as I begin to think, as I uh, heard Julie, really talk about all these incredible ideas and, you know, traumatic brain injury is a serious health condition and needs an earnest attention from the healthcare providers, educators, lawmakers, policymakers, parents and public at large. You know, traumatic brain injury affects the brain and the body and the symptoms can be elusive, particularly in case of mild traumatic brain injury or a concussion. Also, I think there's a little bit of vagaries that are, are associated with traumatic brain injury because no two injuries look alike. There are general cluster of symptoms that are globally identical, but the way individual is affected can be unique and special. And the need that it creates can also be very vivid and different. You know, there's a an addition on top of that, there's a personality and behavioral changes which kind of are slow to emerge sometimes. And in case of a concussion, for example, or mild traumatic brain injury, the patient's presentation may be more psychological in nature and completely incongruent with the expected norm or the conventional wisdom, and can easily be dismissed. And people might get advice such as, "Why don't you wait and see? You know, maybe this will go away. Maybe this will be resolved on its own." So it just depends on the competency of the clinician or expert that is consulted and those experts um, themselves may vary in their body of experiences in dealing with these kind of anomalies. But it's a serious matter is what I gathered at the end of this conversation. So all in all, the most important thing that we need to think about And that's why I love Julie's perspective from the CDC official that it infiltrates quality of life and trajectory of success or having meaningful life. And that's why we must have policies in place that support or allow people to restore their lives back to
1: normal. But there obviously have to be very serious considerations to be given to not only the the long-term outcomes of this, but also the quality of life, right?
2: Yeah, I agree. And as as you and I heard in this discussion, that the long-term changes are the ones that are serious and debilitating, particularly if the injury is serious and debilitating, and they have grave consequences. You know, for example, I had a client who I saw at age 26. His aunt's uh, children just happened to be my my clients, my patients, and they were both these children uh, had ADHD and had a lot of executive function problems. But then, oh, as my work uh, continued with her children, one uh, was a, a you know senior in high school, and the daughter was eighth grader. She said, "Wait a minute, my my nephew is is um, a little odd and uh, just uh, you know just hasn't found himself and is struggling." In you know, you know, both parents are highly educated uh, professionals, but this young man is just sitting in the basement and. So he flew from New York, uh, came down, lived with his aunt and came to see me. And turns out that when he was 10 years old, he was swinging on a swing and in the tree swing and a big branch fell on his head and he had a concussion and lost consciousness and, you know, was taken to the hospital. Nothing came out of it. And eventually he was in middle school and then things change and all the changes eventually added up to be he became a social oddball. So if the parents had received proper information or guidance, this would have been a something related to his concussion. So at 29, when I saw him, he was actually suffering from long, long-standing effects of untreated concussion. So, yeah, I see a lot of that. So most important thing that I think. Just to kind of give you some overview here that, you know, even though previously developed skills may be preserved, new learning may become difficult for people. And that can have a catastrophic impact, uh, particularly if these are young learners. In case of children with TBI, the effects of the brain injury may not be apparent until time advances and uh, more skills are required to emerge, but they don't. And uh, there's something called even sleeper effect, which is more complex and abstract skill set, such as executive function and complex language functions are only used when there's a greater demand. And those demands may not be there at the time of the injury or may completely vanish because the person is not functioning well. So a lot of these considerations really what impacts the quality of life, I feel.
1: Well, what I had never really thought about before, but understand now is that children with a traumatic brain injury, they face very different challenges than adults with traumatic brain injuries. Yes?
2: Yeah. I mean, that's another interesting thing, isn't it? That's takeaway that children are the most vulnerable as it is because they are yet to develop fully. Uh, There is a double-edged sword. The the neuroplasticity research shows that there is a lot of adaptability in the brain that it it has the capacity to rewire. However, it also ha- uh, the children who are in the process of learning how to learn and they are not fully grown into themselves or have a great sense of self. This kind of injury to the brain, the very organ that decides and helps you gather information about the world and form your sense of self, if uh, is it under attack, then that can cause a lot of problems. You know, to me, yeah. all these things begin with. Uh, Right after the traumatic brain injury, which is hospitalization, which has the medical effects, including seizures or visual impairments or maybe physical impairment and those pose barriers. But then all those things lead to activity restriction, which is the biggest compromise, particularly for children, because it limits their participation. And guess what? Most learning uh, or socializing uh, that happens for children is through play and through engagement with peers and if you are under restriction you and if uh, you're dealing with immature brains or minds who do not consider uh, you to be equal, then there can be some added compromises that come in the, in the picture. So, you know, children with more severe injuries uh, have to give up their preferred activities, their routines get disrupted, and their social participation get, uh, you know, zero to nothingness. And that can have a tremendous impact. Also, children and teens uh, with traumatic brain injury can have uh, challenges in participating peer-appropriate social activities such as going out, drinking, driving with friends if there is a restriction because of the seizure or seizure medication if they can't drive. And then finally, like um, they may uh, be excluded for the oddball behaviors such as not socially aware or missing the details or their distractibility and then high level of emotional volatility. All those things can affect children a lot more than adults. And that kind of is the real crux of the matter. Why, Why again, uh, from a health and policy issue, how we educate these children in school, uh, how we do bully, bullying prevention, all that can tie in. Mm-hmm.
1: Lots to think about there. Fascinating material. So before we go, any final thoughts, Cheta?
2: Yeah, mainly I think, as I said, that there is limitations that are brought on to the individual's capacity to operate in the world because of this setback that the brain has endured. And just, uh, just as, as an attack on the body, the brain needs time to heal. But it's hard to judge in what ways it repairs itself. And there are processes and things we can do, but we as a culture need to be very welcoming and open to accept such individuals and not just treat them as outcasts. And mostly, unless somebody's head is in the halo, you can't tell they have a brain injury. And if they behave oddly, then people are afraid of people who behave oddly because they think that it, it's good, it poses some sort of threat. And so the people, folks with traumatic brain injury lie somewhere in the middle. They're not schizophrenics. They're not social oddballs. They just are struggling to find, uh, understand, and make meaning uh, of their life with the brain that has undergone a lot of trauma. And so I, I just, it's an appeal to, um, you know, a public to express and extend compassion to anybody who looks different or is struggling to restore their lives. So that's what I would love to see happen.
1: Yeah, no doubt about it. Uh, You observe humans in living their life and you maybe question how they're acting, but there's a lot maybe you don't know. Lots to think about there. And the good news is, Jada, we get to have Julie on the show again next week, and I'm looking forward to that. I learned a lot today. All right. Well, that is all the time we have for today on behalf of our host, Sucheta Kamath and all of us at Cerebral Matters. Thanks for tuning in and listening. And we look forward to seeing you again right here next week on Full Prefrontal.
0: Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive functions. To contact our host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive functions, visit her website at CerebralMatters.com. That's CerebralMatters.com. Tune in next week for the next informative episode of Full Prefrontal.